Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Welcome. Michael Smirkanish. Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. As a Sirius XM and CNN host, I'm known for speaking, but frankly, I read for a living. I need to know what to say, and so I consume over two dozen newspapers and websites daily. I read opposing views and studies and court cases and orders and op-eds just so I can discuss current events on radio and television. But my favorite reading? Books. Old school. And my favorite interviews are with book authors. Book Club with Michael Smirconish is now in session. I sent Pat Buchanan an email this weekend uh, upon finishing his brand new book, Nixon's White House Wars, the battles that made and broke a president and divided America forever. I wanted to, to know how much I appreciated the uh, the stories, the book, the total package. And the point that I made, as a matter of fact, let me make it to him uh, mano a mano while he's here. Hey, Patrick, thanks for coming back to the program and congrats on the book. Thank you, Michael. Delighted, I was, to, delighted to be back. I was starting to explain to the audience what I said to you in an email uh, over the weekend, which is that today on television, and including on my own program, I fall victim to this. There are so many guests who get on, and the Chiron identifies them as having worked for a president or a presidential candidate, and, and yet the closeness is so tenuous, it's so dubious 
and you come along and write this book about RN and like you were there, you know, for years you were at every step of of the rise and fall of Richard Nixon. You've got the credentials to write this book that I guess what I'm saying is oftentimes the people who get FaceTime today don't have the credibility to accomplish. You know, I do see that yourself, Michael. Uh, you know, you see Democratic strategists and Republican strategists, and they look like they're about 18 years old. <laughs> right. Exactly. Or, or Pat, and I'm not going to name any names, but I do have a few in mind who they, right. they are, you know, they were, they were a counselor to this president or they were an aide to that president or a political director. And I, and I know the facts. And I said, to myself, well, well, you know, not exactly. You know, that's right. I've seen the folks on there. They say, you know, I worked in Reagan's White House, and, and which I did, and, and, and things, and, and they say they were there. And it was during the time I was there. And I will say, you know, somehow I didn't know that fellow. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, uh, one, other, one other thing. One other thing, if I can just blow smoke at you, and then we'll talk about some of the substance. The introduction to Nixon's White House wars is the tightest, most succinct encapsulation of the 60s that I have read in a long, long time. What a generation of news. Well, you know, if, that's, you know, they, if this is the beginning chapter of the book, if you will, the 18 pages? Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. I know, you know, I give credit to my publisher for that. He said, I had started the book off when I was ready right after Nixon was elected. He said, give us a few pages of introduction. And so I sat down and, and wrote that and wrote and wrote, and I thought it was too long. But you did want to introduce folks to what it was like. And I'd started the 60s, I guess, in journalism school in 61, and then St. Louis Globe Democrat up through 65. And then you went into and all these battles that were beginning in this social, cultural, moral, racial, civil rights revolution we went through on every issue and how violently it ended in 68 with assassinations and the blow up at the Chicago Convention and, and universities and colleges shut down and, 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 and crimes and even the cultural things that occurred at the end of that decade, you know, in that chapter on the culture war. It was an astonishing decade, the most divisive since the Civil War. Well, your publisher gave you good advice because without understanding the climate and the context, I don't think you can appreciate Nixon's rise nor how he uh, governed. You referenced the Globe Democrat. So for those who don't know, Patrick J. Buchanan was a young newspaper columnist at the Globe Democrat who goes to work for Richard Nixon, and you get the gig by reminding him that you caddied for him at Burning Tree. That's right. I grew up in D.C., Michael, and uh, a friend and I in, who worked, I got together in the, down in Rock Creek Park at this summer, summer camp, if you will. We were looking for jobs, and we went around the golf courses to see if we could be caddies for the summer, and, and Burning Tree put us on. We were the last two on the caddy log. That's where we sat I used to see Ike come over and tee off, and I never carried his golf bag, but late one afternoon, they put out this plaid golf bag, and I said, that's the golf bag of the vice president of the United States. And the, we, were, we were very novice caddies, so the pro looked over at us grimly <laughs> and said, okay, you two are going around the golf course. I've carried the bag of this general, and my buddy Pete Cook carried the bag of Nixon. But I was with him around all 18 holes of the uh, Burning Tree Country Club, and I found out then I did not have Arnold Palmer with me, and, and he had a pretty rich vocabulary. <laughs> did, he, did he keep it fair, Pat? <laughs> 
I had to go looking in the weeds for a couple of the balls, I'll tell you. <laughs> so uh, I was also uh, uh, noting that you've led, politically speaking, historically speaking, quite a charmed life. I did not know until I read the book that you were yards away from MLK when he delivered the I Have a Dream speech. Oh, yeah. I came back from St. Louis as an editorial writer. And again, I was born and raised in D.C. had a big family there. And I got my, who's now my late brother, and I said, come with me. We're going to go down. We went down, frankly, the MLK March, the March for Jobs and Freedom, began in the morning. We were down there on the Monument lot. They had Nazis, you know, George Lincoln Rockwell's crowd was there. But then they marched up there a little bit after noon, and I was standing right on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial when Martin Luther King gave that speech. And, you know, I talked for about, I'd say, 30 minutes with Fred Shuttlesworth, who was really the black civil rights hero of Birmingham. He was a pastor down there when it was really Bombingham. And I talked with him, and then King gave that speech, and I remember it was the most astonishing speech I had ever seen. And I went back and I wrote about it in St. Louis, but if you can believe it, the Washington Post did not lead with the speech at all, just talked about the demonstration. But you knew as you heard him deliver it, there's it was the this greatest is special. speech I'd ever heard since I used to say since uh, it, I didn't and I didn't see it. Uh, Douglas MacArthur's address to the uh, to the uh, joint session, but this is now far greater in history. And yeah, uh, I was I was not 15 yards away from him, and I was right about on the le- same level. I've often thought of going finding those great photos, big photos, you know, and, and getting finding a, yourself. a microscope and see if they could find me in there. <laughs> Hey, Pat, when when many had left Nixon for political dead, he's lost the, the race to JFK and he's lost to Brown in California. Now he's in a New York law office and he is surrounded by just three people, you, your future wife, Shelley and Rosemary Woods. Right. And one other person that was in the office there and she was uh, taking phone calls and she called herself Miss Ryan when she answered the phone. That was Patricia Thelman Ryan Nixon, the future first lady of the United States. I used to bum cigarettes from her. I was a very heavy smoker. But she and Rosemary Woods and uh, and I were in that little office, and Shelley was right outside as the receptionist to lawyer Richard Nixon, as she had been the receptionist to Vice President Nixon eight years before, right across the hall from Jack Kennedy's Senate office. It's amazing. I, I love amazing. these. Yeah, I love these type of stories that you get in i mean not only do you deal with the subject matter as you put it nixon's white house wars but i just love listening to the stories that you tell in the book about uh the people with whom he surrounded himself as a matter of fact you write in the book and i don't know that these are nixon's words i think they're pat buchanan's words personnel is policy and then pat and this is much further into the book you describe the stellar team that he assembled and what became of many of those people give me the cliff's note version you mean where they went? Well, we had four members of Nixon's White House staff that became U.S. senators: Pat Moynihan, <clears throat> Bob Dole's Bob Dole's wife, Elizabeth Dole, um, Lamar Alexander worked with me. He was a young guy in the congressional liaison shop, and the senator from Connecticut, uh, what's his name, is uh, worked in Pat Moynihan's shop as a very young guy. Four Blue of them. You got three secretaries of state in there: Al Haig, Henry Kissinger, and Larry Eagleburger. In the 96 campaign, you had two presidential candidates who were staff men in Nixon's White House, Buchanan and Lamar Alexander. So it was, a, it was a White House of extraordinary talent and ability. 
and it, it came to a city that was even more hostile or as hostile to it as Washington, D.C. is now hostile, I would think, to, to Donald Trump. I think Nixon got about, I think he might have got a eight, eight, 18% or something of the vote in Washington, D.C. Trump got 4%. I, I get the overlap between the current president and RN relative to populism, but as I was reading Pat Buchanan's brand new book, I was saying to myself, they could not be more night and day. Nixon, as you present him, and I'm sure this is 100% accurate, was intensely studious. As a matter of fact, you talk about the daily news summaries that were your responsibility in a you know vastly pre-internet age. What was the purpose of the daily news summary and the significance of your preparing it? Well, I, actually, I was in charge of its preparation, and I brought in a, guy, a kid named Mort Allen, who had been head of youth for Nixon. But what Nixon had me do when I first went with him in 66, 67, 68, on the road and got into the White House, he wanted the, his own news summary. He didn't want to get up, watch television. He didn't like to do it. And so he, we got and built a staff that watched the TV shows at night, that read all the newspapers the next day at night before they came out, that scoured the magazines and wrote up a daily news summary by issues which was on the president's desk by 7 o'clock in the morning. It began at about, say, 8 or 10 pages, eventually wound up at about 40 pages and 50 pages a time. Nixon eventually had most of his White House staff required to read it, and he would use this, this news summary to issue orders and write them in the margins, do this, Buchanan this, get this to Haldeman, you know, get tell Ehrlichman to handle this, Henry, H-A-K, do this. So it became this instrument of federal policy. And Nixon would say, you know, he would send word through Haldeman, uh, don't put so much of this TV show in, put more of this show. It was Nixon creating basically his own media source, which was a combination of uh, reports on TV, radio, magazines, everything you could think of. But here's what I took away from that. So if, if Pat Buchanan is the guy who's deciding what's going into that daily news summary, and if he's governing as a result of that glimpse of the outside world, that put tremendous power in your hands. Did you appreciate that at the time? Well, we certainly did. I mean, uh, I tell one little anecdote in there. When the 72 campaign was in the middle, I would come in early and underline the news summary before it was taken over to the Oval Office. And Father Theodore Hesburgh, the head of Notre Dame, head of the Civil Rights Commission, made some statement late in the campaign that said, you know, if Nixon is reelected, I may just resign from the Civil Rights Commission. So I put an arrow to it. I said, some little made a little note in the margin, a good reason to win big, another good reason to win big. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of days after the election, Washington Post has his headline, Father Hesburgh fired from Civil Rights Commission. So it had tremendous influence, there's no doubt about it. I mean, that's where Nixon got his reports on the war. He got, And frankly, a lot of his speeches and things came out of this, like the famous Agnew speeches attack in the media. When you reported on the reaction to his speeches to the country on Vietnam, which were his most controversial, the Cambodian invasion and the great silent majority speech, I mean, he would react to what he read in his news summary and give orders to his staff to respond. And so it, you're right, it was a tremendous instrument of governance over which basically Mort Allen, who was a moderate conservative Republican, solid conservative Republican, had absolute control. 
you also talk. Hey, by the way, do you have a copy of your manuscript handy? The uh, I don't have the book handy, but I've got it pretty well in my mind. All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to read yes, from it. I do it. have an early edition. Shelley, can you hand it to me? Go ahead. If if you do, uh, go to page 332, because one of us is going to read it. Either I'm going to read it or you're going to read it. And the subject, uh, again, on, on this incredible insight into Nixon being so studious and detail-oriented, I want to talk about the briefing books that you had These responsibility. The conference briefing books, right. Okay, go ahead. You want All right, me to so read if it? You're, yeah, I want you to read which, what begins a day or two before them. Okay, where is that, at the top? Let's 332, see. yeah. A day or, okay, a day or two before these press conference, Nixon would shut the door and, fountain pen in hand, sit with the briefing books I had prepared, talking to no one as he studied, calling me only to order more information on some issue. Writing on his briefing book pages, he would list the points that he would make in response to the questions as they came in, and as I indicated, they probably would. He would number the points, then scribble more notes, then send his briefing book back to me, then thrust his shoulders back and march into, quote, the arena, unquote, where the atmosphere, like that of a championship fight, was electric with tension. After years of preparing his briefing books and predicting the questions that would be asked, I got so good at it that I sometimes predicted every one. After one such press conference, Nixon called, and the conversation went like this. Nixon, excellent job, Buchanan. I see you predicted every question. Buchanan, yes, sir, I believe we did. Nixon, but I noticed that there were questions in the briefing book that were not asked. Buchanan, puzzled, silenced. Nixon, next time, leave those out. (laughs) Come on, Pat, that's a hell of a story. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I used it at at his 100th birthday, I told him this I was just astounded. This is one thing about, you know, I I really liked Nixon, obviously. He was very good to me. But there were quirks and uh, idiosyncrasies and things, and every Nixon aide had a story about that. I mean, let me mention the briefing book, you know, the not the briefing book, the news summary. Steve Bull came in one morning, he, and he was the personal guy, aide, and, uh, and, and, the, and the news summary was on Nixon's desk, and Steve Bull was, came in and was starting to a door, and it was so awful, the stuff that was in the news summary, as Steve was... <laughs> The briefing, the new summary came over his head. <laughs> he just, hey, I'm a- but he just opened, read the first page, and threw it. Over. <laughs> uh, I'm not giving it all away for free, but one one other subject: Pat Buchanan advised Richard Nixon to burn the tapes. You sent him a 1,500-word memo, July 25, 1973. And I, I was curious, did you ever revisit post-resignation that subject with him? Well, he, he wrote in his, I don't know if we talked about it, but, you know, he considered burning the uh, tapes. And, I, you know, I told him, hold on, you've got to keep the, the tapes of conversations that Dean had testified because they were in dispute. And I thought we were fine on those. And keep your Brezhnev conversations, your big things that you are vitally important in foreign policy. But the rest of sitting there with Haldeman or Ehrlichman or anybody else, or the speechwriters, talking around and laughing about what we're going to do to the opposition, throw that junk out and burn it and get rid of it and do it and announce it after you've done it, not before. And he considered doing it. And uh, Haig and the others convinced him not to do it. And Nixon wrote in his memoir 
if I had done it, I would have survived. So, um, so what was the other? What was the other question? Uh, afterward, did I discuss it with him at San Clemente? I don't recall discussing it, but I knew that uh, that's what he believed. That he was, uh, you know, that's what he said later, and that's what he believed. They had friends out there working with him on his memoirs. I have to say, and, and I'll let you go after this, uh, that my perhaps my favorite part of the book is Nixon, the ex-president, still the political animal and heavily reliant on Pat Buchanan for the stories and the innuendo and the scuttlebutt. And uh, he commented, you, you have to just, if you wouldn't mind, he commented on that speech you gave, what was it, 92, I guess, in Houston, right? And he the particularly... Yeah, he. I just remember the cross-dressing line, but uh, he particularly liked the Kennedy bit. Do you mind telling that? I mean, it's, and set it up. What happens? He calls you after the speech. Yep, yep. He called me after the speech. But what I'd said in the speech, you know, and I, I and I can't, that was one of the things that I did not leave in my text, and I used it, winged it, basically, and I said something about um, Teddy Kennedy in the in the forum, and I knew everybody in the forum would boo. There are 30,000 people in there, and they booed. And I said, look, don't boo. Um, you know, I, I admire Teddy Kennedy. How many other 60-year-olds year olds do you still go to Florida for spring break? <laughs> <laughs> and, and you Nixon win that. after the speech, and he loved that line, you know. Uh, he liked great. the speech. But he wanted let me tell you one quick story. What, if we had a second here. Yeah, do it. Okay. That, you know, when, after I lost to Bush, I lost New Hampshire, but did it tremendously well against the president, got 37% to his 50%. Then I went down to Georgia and did almost well. And then on Super Tuesday, I lost eight straight primaries, all of them. So I called him up and I said, Mr. President, how are you? Ten for ten, not bad, huh? <laughs> Nixon says, Nixon says, Buchanan, you're the only extremist I know with a sense of humor. Pat, I've always said that about you. I always say he's got a hell of a sense of humor. Hey, the book is terrific. I really, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope you can tell from uh, from the tone of my voice and my questions that it was a, it was well, a great I've read for me. I've enjoyed this, too, and we enjoy all these discussions, my friend. Patrick, the book is titled Nixon's White House Wars, and congratulations on its publication. Thank you, my friend. You take it easy. Bye-bye. That's Pat Buchanan. There you go. So... Just a storyteller. I mean, that's what that was. And you two clearly thoroughly enjoying each other in that interview. But I just love the stories. And your point that you started the interview with about how he was the real deal, he was actually there, and he gets such a kick out of people saying, like, I was in the Reagan White House, and he's like, I, I don't remember seeing you there. That was very interesting. I, uh, I met Richard Nixon. I met President Nixon once. Uh, it was post-presidency, and it was at a black-tie dinner where I was supposed to dine with him at his table. And I'd had a falling out. Uh, it's a long story, but I was supposed to be there with former Philadelphia Mayor Frank Rizzo. And I had had a falling out with Rizzo just before the dinner, uh, within a couple of days. <clears throat> and for Rizzo to have con- uh, consented to go to the dinner was a big deal. They were friendly. President Nixon and Mayor Rizzo. Oh, I just looked at the clock. Do I have time to tell this? I guess I do. We need to hear it. You could break and yes. tell it after the break. All right. I, I, Dan Dan is probably having conniptions in D.C. <laughs> no, you uh, can DC. keep going. you got five more minutes. How much time do you need? Oh, oh, oh okay. Okay, thank you. Okay, so let me let me tell this story. Let me tell this story. Let me, I, I hadn't expected to tell it, so let me just try and clear my head and, and hopefully tell it well. So I worked at the end of law school for Frank Rizzo. Frank Rizzo had been... 
Frank Rizzo had been the Democratic mayor two terms of Philadelphia, 71 to 75, 75 to 79. And as a Democrat, enjoyed a very close personal and working relationship with President Nixon. Nixon, the Republican, Rizzo, the Democrat, it didn't matter. So much later in life, Nixon uh, had maintained contact with Rizzo. I was at Rizzo's house the day after we lost the 91 mayoral race and a letter arrived from Richard Nixon. This I'll never forget. A handwritten letter arrives at the Rizzo home and it says, Dear Mayor Rizzo, uh, I don't think it said Dear Frank. I think it was Dear, Dear Mayor Rizzo. When you win, when you win, you hear from everyone. When you lose, you hear only from your friends. Consider me in the latter category. I get goosebumps thinking about that. That genuine a good way to handle someone who's lost. Something. No doubt. So, so thereafter, Richard Nixon, he's he's doing very select events uh, in uh, in in front of uh, private groups, and he was coming to the Union League in Philadelphia to speak on foreign policy. By the way, the speech that night was in front of several hundred people, all in black tie. Nixon with a uh, a single mic, no podium, a single mic, speaks for 60 minutes, spellbinding. Phenomenal, phenomenal speech. And it's on tape, by the way, somewhere. I've, I've got a copy. But before the dinner... I somebody reaches out to me from the league and they say, would you like to come to the dinner with President Nixon and bring Mayor Rizzo? And and I knew that it, that my they didn't say it, but I knew that my invitation was was conditioned upon delivering Mayor Rizzo. So and Rizzo was still sort of sitting Shiva from having lost the mayoral race and, and was not going out publicly. So I had to coax him into accepting the idea of going to this big dinner and 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 being able to sit at a table with Nixon before Nixon speaks to the big auditorium. Rizzo agrees. And the reason that was a particularly hard sell is it would involve him putting on a black tie and he didn't want to put on a black tie for anything. There's a very famous photograph of Frank Rizzo with a nightstick stuck in his cummerbund. And that was, you know, that was his experience in wearing a black tie. Always very very natalie dressed and so forth but not a black tie guy anyway i've got the dinner all lined up and i am getting my reward is i'm going to get to go and sit next to both rizzo and nixon rizzo and i then have a falling out and the last line of the of of a particular argument was him it's a serious xm i'm just going to tell you he said to me fuck you and your nixon dinner he wasn't coming so now i have to call the league president and say Uh, I know that you were inviting me as a courtesy because I was bringing Mayor Rizzo and Mayor Rizzo is is not able to join us. And if you'd like me to sit with the pedestrians, I'd be happy to do so, secretly hoping that they would say, oh, no, 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 please come and sit with President Nixon. And no, they said, that's right. You sit with everybody else. Back row. Okay. so the night of the the night of the dinner, I uh, I'm there and my uh, my good friend uh, Bobby Flood uh, was totally wired at the club. And he said to me, I can get you in the door where Nixon is dining with a small group, but then you're on your own. Do you want me to? And I said, that's all you need. That's all I need. That's all you need. Okay. So I now I walk into this room. This is before the big speech. And I walk into this room and it takes, you know how it takes a minute for your eyes to adjust to different lighting. Mm -hmm. It takes me a moment for my eyes to adjust. And I look across the room and there is President Nixon having dinner 
at a group of uh, eight or ten at his table and in conversation with the individual who said to me, that's right, sit downstairs with everybody else. (laughs) I approach the table and the only way that I can extend greetings to President Nixon is to literally reach my right hand in front of this unnamed gentleman and say, Mr. President, I'm Michael Smirkanish, which I did. You're not surprised by that at all, right? Not at all. Okay, so Nixon stands up on his feet, clutches my hand in this warm embrace and said, I am so honored to meet you. What you did for Mayor Rizzo in that campaign and coming that close and on the heels of your own losing election while maintaining full credits at the University of Pennsylvania Law School is an amazing feat. And he goes on and on and on. About me. Was the unnamed gentleman wide-eyed? The unnamed gentleman almost had a heart attack (laughs) thinking that he had kept apart these two long-lost friends, Michael (laughs) Smirnikosh and Richard Milhouse Nixon, okay? And and I allowed, I just absorbed the whole moment and I, I, I was completely caught up in it, but I'm an old advance man. And I, I know that as you just heard from Pat Buchanan, Richard Nixon was ever studious. Nobody prepared more than Nixon. He had Buchanan doing those doing those books. Were, he was briefed. He was briefed. He the, the cancellation for dinner came too late, and he was briefed as if I was going to be sitting next to him. But that was lost on the gentleman next to a butter knife away from him. That's my story. Thank you, Dan, for allowing me to tell that. Sure. Book Club with Michael Smirkanish. New episodes drop Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen to the Michael Smirkanish program weekdays on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 and anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com.